What is a classic? By Charles Augustine Saint-Biove. A delicate question, to which somewhat diverse solutions might be given according to times and seasons. An intelligent man suggests it to me, and I intend to try, if not to solve it, at least to examine and discuss it face to face with my readers, were it only to persuade them to answer it for themselves, and, if I can, to make their opinion and mine on the point clear. And why, in criticism, should we not, from time to time, venture to treat some of those subjects which are not personal, in which we no longer speak of someone but of something. Our neighbors, the English, have well succeeded in making of it a special division of literature under the modest title of essays. It is true that in writing of such subjects, always slightly abstract and moral, it is advisable to speak of them in a season of quiet, to make sure of our own attention, and of that of others, to seize one of those moments of calm moderation and leisure seldom granted our amiable France, even when she is desirous of being wise, and is not making revolutions, her brilliant genius can scarcely tolerate them. A classic, according to the usual definition, is an old author canonized by admiration, and an authority in his particular style. The word classic was first used in this sense by the Romans. With them not all the citizens of the different classes were properly called classici, but only those of the chief class, those who possessed an income of a certain fixed sum. Those who possessed a smaller income were described by the term infraclassum, below the preeminent class. The word classicus was used in a figurative sense by Aulus Gellius, and applied to writers, a writer of worth and distinction, Classicus Acidusque Scripter, a writer who is of account, has real property, and is not lost in the proletariat crowd. Such an expression implies an age sufficiently advanced to have already made some sort of valuation and classification of literature. At first the only true classics for the moderns were the ancients. The Greeks, by peculiar good fortune and natural enlightenment of mind, had no classics but themselves. They were at first the only classical authors for the Romans, who strove and contrived to imitate them. After the great periods of Roman literature, after Cicero and Virgil, the Romans in their turn had their classics, who became almost exclusively the classical authors of the centuries which followed. The Middle Ages, which were less ignorant of Latin antiquity than is believed, but which lacked proportion and taste, confused the ranks and orders. Ovid was placed above Homer, and Boetius seemed a classic equal to Plato. The revival of learning in the 15th and 16th centuries helped to bring this long chaos to order, and then only was admiration rightly proportioned. Thenceforth the true classical authors of Greek and Latin antiquity stood out in a luminous background, and were harmoniously grouped on their two heights. Meanwhile modern literatures were born, and some of the more precocious, like the Italian, already possessed the style of antiquity. Dante appeared and, from the very first, posterity greeted him as a classic. Italian poetry has since shrunk into far narrower bounds, but, whenever it desired to do so, it always found again, and preserved the impulse and echo of its lofty origin. It is no indifferent matter for a poetry to derive its point of departure and classical source in high places, for example, to spring from Dante rather than to issue laboriously from Malherbe. Modern Italy had her classical authors, and Spain had every right to believe that she also had hers at a time when France was yet seeking hers. A few talented writers endowed with originality and exceptional animation, a few brilliant efforts, isolated, without following, interrupted and recommenced, 
did not suffice to endow a nation with a solid and imposing basis of literary wealth. The idea of a classic implies something that has continuance and consistence, and which produces unity and tradition, fashions and transmits itself, and endures. It was only after the glorious years of Louis XIV that the nation felt with tremor and pride that such good fortune had happened to her. Every voice informed Louis XIV of it with flattery, exaggeration, and emphasis, yet with a certain sentiment of truth. Then arose a singular and striking contradiction, those men of whom Perrault was the chief, the men who were most smitten with the marvels of the age of Louis the Great, who even went the length of sacrificing the ancients to the moderns, aimed at exalting and canonizing even those whom they regarded as inveterate opponents and adversaries. Boileau avenged and angrily upheld the ancients against Perrault, who extolled the moderns, that is to say, Corneille, Moliere, Pascal, and the eminent men of his age, Boileau, one of the first, included. Kindly La Fontaine, taking part in the dispute in behalf of the learned Hute, did not perceive that, in spite of his defects, he was in his turn on the point of being held as a classic himself. Example is the best definition. From the time France possessed her age of Louis XIV and could contemplate it at a little distance, she knew, better than by any arguments, what to be classical meant. The 18th century, even in its medley of things, strengthened this idea through some fine works, due to its four great men. Read Voltaire's Age of Louis XIV, Montesquieu's Greatness, and Fall of the Romans, Buffon's Epics of Nature, the beautiful pages of Reverie and Natural Description of Rousseau's Savoyard Vicar, and say if the 18th century, in these memorable works, did not understand how to reconcile tradition with freedom of development and independence. But at the beginning of the present century, and under the empire, in sight of the first attempts of a decidedly new and somewhat adventurous literature, the idea of a classic in a few resisting minds, more sorrowful than severe, was strangely narrowed and contracted. The first dictionary of the Academy, 1964, merely defined a classical author as a much-approved ancient writer, who is an authority as regards the subject he treats. The Dictionary of the Academy of 1835 narrows that definition still more, and gives precision, and even limit to its rather vague form. It describes classical authors as those who have become models in any language whatever, and in all the articles which follow, the expressions, models, fixed rules for composition and style, strict rules of art to which men must conform, continually recur. That definition of classic was evidently made by the respectable academicians, our predecessors, in face and sight of what was then called romantic, that is to say, in sight of the enemy. It seems to me time to renounce those timid and restrictive definitions, and to free our mind of them. A true classic, as I should like to hear it defined, is an author who has enriched the human mind, increased its treasure, and caused it to advance a step, who has discovered some moral and not equivocal truth, or revealed some eternal passion in that heart where all seemed known and discovered, who has expressed his thought, observation, or invention, in no matter what form, only provided it be broad and great, refined and sensible, sane and beautiful in itself, who has spoken to all in his own peculiar style, a style which is found to be also that of the whole world, a style new without neologism, new and old, easily contemporary with all time. Such a classic may for a moment have been revolutionary, it may at least have seemed so, but it is not, it only lashed and subverted whatever prevented the restoration of the balance of order and beauty.
If it is desired, names may be applied to this definition, which I wish to make purposely majestic and fluctuating, or in a word, all-embracing. I should first put their cornet of the polyuct, Cinna, and Horace's. I should put Moliere there, the fullest and most complete poetic genius we have ever had in France. Goethe, the king of critics, said. Quote, Moliere is so great that he astonishes us afresh every time we read him. He is a man apart, his plays border on the tragic, and no one has the courage to try and imitate him. His aver, where vice destroys all affection between father and son, is one of the most sublime works, and dramatic in the highest degree. In a drama every action ought to be important in itself, and to lead to an action greater still. In this respect Tartuffe is a model. What a piece of exposition the first scene is. From the beginning everything has an important meaning, and causes something much more important to be foreseen. The exposition in a certain play of Lessing that might be mentioned is very fine, but the world only sees that of Tartuffe once. It is the finest of the kind we possess. Every year I read a play of Moliere, just as from time to time I contemplate some engraving after the great Italian masters. End of quote. I do not conceal from myself that the definition of the classic I have just given somewhat exceeds the notion usually ascribed to the term. It should, above all, include conditions of uniformity, wisdom, moderation, and reason, which dominate and contain all the others. Having to praise M. Royer Collard, M. de Remusat said, if he derives purity of taste, propriety of terms, variety of expression, attentive care in suiting the diction to the thought, from our classics, he owes to himself alone the distinctive character he gives it all. It is here evident that the part allotted to classical qualities seems mostly to depend on harmony and nuances of expression, on graceful and temperate style, such is also the most general opinion. In this sense the preeminent classics would be writers of a middling order, exact, sensible, elegant, always clear, yet of noble feeling and airily veiled strength. Marie-Joseph Chenier has described the poetics of those temperate and accomplished writers in lines where he shows himself their happy disciple. Quote, it is good sense, reason which does all, virtue, genius, soul, talent, and taste, what is virtue? Reason put in practice, talent? Reason expressed with brilliance, soul? Reason delicately put forth, and genius is sublime reason. End of quote. While writing those lines he was evidently thinking of Pope, Boileau, and Horace, the master of them all. The peculiar characteristic of the theory which subordinated imagination, and feeling itself to reason, of which Scaliger perhaps gave the first sign, among the moderns, is, properly speaking, the Latin theory, and for a long time it was also by preference the French theory. If it is used appositely, if the term reason is not abused, that theory possesses some truth, but it is evident that it is abused, and that if, for instance, reason can be confounded with poetic genius, and make one with it in a moral epistle, it cannot be the same thing as the genius, so varied and so diversely creative in its expression of the passions, of the drama, or the epic. Where will you find reason in the fourth book of the Aeneid and the transports of Dido? Be that as it may, the spirit which prompted the theory, caused writers who ruled their inspiration, rather than those who abandoned themselves to it, to be placed in the first rank of classics, to put Virgil there more surely than Homer, Racine in preference to Corneille. The masterpiece to which the theory likes to point, 
which in fact brings together all conditions of prudence, strength, tempered boldness, moral elevation, and grandeur, is Athelie. Turin in his two last campaigns and Racine in Athelie are the great examples of what wise and prudent men are capable of when they reach the maturity of their genius and attain their supremest boldness. Buffon, in his discourse on style, insisting on the unity of design, arrangement, and execution, which are the stamps of true classical works, said, every subject is one, and however vast it is, it can be comprised in a single treatise. Interruptions, pauses, subdivisions should only be used when many subjects are treated, when, having to speak of great, intricate, and dissimilar things, the march of genius is interrupted by the multiplicity of obstacles and contracted by the necessity of circumstances, otherwise, far from making a work more solid, a great number of divisions destroys the unity of its parts. The book appears clearer to the view, but the author's design remains obscure. And he continues his criticism, having in view Montesquieu's Spirit of Laws, an excellent book at bottom, but subdivided, the famous author, worn out before the end, was unable to infuse inspiration into all his ideas and to arrange all his matter. However, I can scarcely believe that Buffon was not also thinking, by way of contrast, of Bossuet's discourse on universal history, a subject vast indeed, and yet of such an unity that the great order was able to comprise it in a single treatise. When we open the first edition, that of 1681, before the division into chapters, which was introduced later, passed from the margin into the text, everything is developed in a single series, almost in one breath. It might be said that the orator has here acted like the nature of which Buffon speaks, that he has worked on an eternal plan from which he has nowhere departed, so deeply does he seem to have entered into the familiar counsels and designs of providence. Are Athelie and the Discourse on Universal History the greatest masterpieces that the strict classical theory can present to its friends as well as to its enemies? In spite of the admirable simplicity and dignity in the achievement of such unique productions, we should like, nevertheless, in the interests of art, to expand that theory a little, and to show that it is possible to enlarge it without relaxing the tension. Goethe, whom I like to quote on such a subject, said, Quote, I call the classical healthy and the romantic sickly. In my opinion the Nibelungen song is as much a classic as Homer. Both are healthy and vigorous. The works of the day are romantic, not because they are new, but because they are weak, ailing, or sickly. Ancient works are classical not because they are old, but because they are powerful, fresh, and healthy. If we regarded romantic and classical from those two points of view we should soon all agree. End of quote. Indeed, before determining and fixing the opinions on that matter, I should like every unbiased mind to take a voyage round the world and devote itself to a survey of different literatures in their primitive vigor and infinite variety. What would be seen? Chief of all a Homer, the father of the classical world, less a single distinct individual than the vast living expression of a whole epoch and a semi-barbarous civilization. In order to make him a true classic, it was necessary to attribute to him later a design, a plan, literary invention, qualities of atticism and urbanity of which he had certainly never dreamed in the luxuriant development of his natural inspirations. And who appear by his side? August, venerable ancients, the Aeschyluses and the Sophocles, mutilated, it is true, and only there to present us with a debris of themselves, the survivors of many others as worthy, doubtless, as they to survive, but who have succumbed to the injuries of time. 
This thought alone would teach a man of impartial mind not to look upon the whole of even classical literatures with a too narrow and restricted view, he would learn that the exact and well-proportioned order which has since so largely prevailed in our admiration of the past was only the outcome of artificial circumstances. And in reaching the modern world, how would it be? The greatest names to be seen at the beginning of literatures are those which disturb and run counter to certain fixed ideas of what is beautiful and appropriate in poetry. For example, is Shakespeare a classic? Yes, now, for England and the world, but in the time of Pope he was not considered so. Pope and his friends were the only preeminent classics, directly after their death they seemed so forever. At the present time they are still classics, as they deserve to be but they are only of the second order, and are forever subordinated and relegated to their rightful place by him who has again come to his own on the height of the horizon. It is not, however, for me to speak ill of Pope, or his great disciples, above all, when they posse's pathos and naturalness like Goldsmith, after the greatest they are perhaps the most agreeable writers and the poets best fitted to add charm to life. Once when Lord Bolingbroke was writing to Swift, Pope added a postscript, in which he said, I think some advantage would result to our age, if we three spent three years together. Men who, without boasting, have the right to say such things must never be spoken of lightly, the fortunate ages, when men of talent could propose such things, then no chimera, are rather to be envied. The ages called by the name of Louis XIV. Or of Queen and R, in the dispassionate sense of the word, the only true classical ages, those which offer protection, and a favorable climate to real talent. We know only too well how in our untrammeled times, through the instability and storminess of the age, talents are lost and dissipated. Nevertheless, let us acknowledge our age's part and superiority in greatness. True and sovereign genius triumphs over the very difficulties that cause others to fail, Dante, Shakespeare, and Milton were able to attain their height and produce their imperishable works in spite of obstacles, hardships and tempests. Byron's opinion of Pope has been much discussed, and the explanation of it sought in the kind of contradiction, by which the singer of Don Juan and Child Harold extolled the purely classical school, and pronounced it the only good one, while himself acting so differently. Goethe spoke the truth on that point when he remarked that Byron, great by the flow and source of poetry, feared that Shakespeare was more powerful than himself in the creation and realization of his characters. He would have liked to deny it, the elevation so free from egoism irritated him, he felt when near it that he could not display himself at ease. He never denied Pope, because he did not fear him, he knew that Pope was only a low wall by his side. If, as Byron desired, Pope's school had kept the supremacy and a sort of honorary empire in the past, Byron would have been the first and only poet in his particular style, the height of Pope's wall shuts out Shakespeare's great figure from sight, whereas when Shakespeare reigns and rules in all his greatness, Byron is only second. In France there was no great classic before the age of Louis XIV. The Dantes and Shakespeare's, the early authorities to whom, in times of emancipation, men sooner or later return, were wanting. There were mere sketches of great poets, like Mathurin Renier, like Rabelais, without any ideal, without the depth of emotion and the seriousness which canonises. Montaigne was a kind of premature classic, of the family of Horace, but for want of worthy surroundings, like a spoiled child, he gave himself up to the unbridled fancies of his style and humor.
Hence it happened that France, less than any other nation, found in her old authors a right to demand vehemently at a certain time literary liberty and freedom, and that it was more difficult for her, in enfranchising herself, to remain classical. However, with Molière and La Fontaine among her classics of the great period, nothing could justly be refused to those who possessed courage and ability. The important point now seems to me to be to uphold, while extending, the idea and belief. There is no receipt for making classics, this point should be clearly recognized. To believe that an author will become a classic by imitating certain qualities of purity, moderation, accuracy, and elegance, independently of the style and inspiration, is to believe that after Racine the father there is a place for Racine the son, dull and estimable role, the worst in poetry. Further, it is hazardous to take too quickly, and without opposition the place of a classic in the sight of one's contemporaries, in that case there is a good chance of not retaining the position with posterity. Fontaine's in his day was regarded by his friends as a pure classic, see how at twenty-five years' distance his star has set. How many of these precocious classics are there who do not endure, and who are so only for a while? We turn round one morning and are surprised not to find them standing behind us. Madame de Savine would wittily say they possessed, but an evanescent color. With regard to classics, the least expected prove the best and greatest, seek them rather in the vigorous genius born immortal and flourishing forever. Apparently the least classical of the four great poets of the age of Louis XIV. Was Moliere, he was then applauded far more than he was esteemed, men took delight in him without understanding his worth. After him, La Fontaine seemed the least classical, observe after two centuries what is the result for both. Far above Boileau, even above Racine, are they not now unanimously considered to possess in the highest degree the characteristics of an all-embracing morality? Meanwhile there is no question of sacrificing or depreciating anything. I believe the temple of taste is to be rebuilt, but its reconstruction is merely a matter of enlargement, so that it may become the home of all noble human beings, of all who have permanently increased the sum of the mind's delights and possessions. As for me, who cannot, obviously, in any degree pretend to be the architect or designer of such a temple, I shall confine myself to expressing a few earnest wishes, to submit, as it were, my designs for the edifice. Above all I should desire not to exclude any one among the worthy, each should be in his place there, from Shakespeare, the freest of creative geniuses, and the greatest of classics without knowing it, to Andrews, the last of classics in little. There is more than one chamber in the mansions of my father, that should be as true of the kingdom of the beautiful here below, as of the kingdom of heaven. Homer, as always and everywhere, should be first, likest a god, but behind him, like the procession of the three wise kings of the East, would be seen the three great poets, the three Homers, so long ignored by us, who wrote epics for the use of the old peoples of Asia, the poets Valmiki, Vyasa of the Hindus, and Ferdusi of the Persians. In the domain of taste it is well to know that such men exist, and not to divide the human race. Our homage paid to what is recognized as soon as perceived, we must not stray further, the I should delight in a thousand pleasing or majestic spectacles, should rejoice in a thousand varied and surprising combinations, whose apparent confusion would never be without concord and harmony. The oldest of the wise men and poets, those who put human morality into maxims, and those who in simple fashion sung it, would converse together in rare and gentle speech, and would not be surprised at understanding each other's meaning at the very first word. Solon, Hesiod, 
Theognis, Job, Solomon, and why not Confucius, would welcome the cleverest moderns, La Rochefoucauld, and La Bruyere, who, when listening to them, would say they knew all that we know, and in repeating life's experiences, we have discovered nothing. On the hill, most easily discernible, and of most accessible ascent, Virgil, surrounded by Menander, Tibullus, Terence, Fenelon, would occupy himself in discoursing with them with great charm and divine enchantment, his gentle countenance would shine with an inner light, and be tinged with modesty, as on the day when entering the theatre at Rome, just as they finished reciting his verses, he saw the people rise with an unanimous movement, and pay to him the same homage as to Augustus. Not far from him, regretting the separation from so dear a friend, Horace, in his turn, would preside, as far as so accomplished and wise a poet could preside, over the group of poets of social life who could talk although they sang, Pope, Boileau, the one become less irritable, the other less fault-finding. Montaigne, a true poet would be among them, and would give the finishing touch that should deprive that delightful corner of the air of literary school. There would La Fontaine forget himself, and becoming less volatile would wander no more. Voltaire would be attracted by it, but while finding pleasure in it would not have patience to remain. A little lower down, on the same hill as Virgil, Xenophon, with simple bearing, looking in no way like a general, but rather resembling a priest of the muses, would be seen gathering round him the attics of every tongue and of every nation, the Addisons, Polissons, Vauvenargs, all who feel the value of an easy persuasiveness, an exquisite simplicity, and a gentle negligence mingled with ornament. In the center of the place, in the portico of the principal temple, for there would be several in the enclosure, three great men would like to meet often, and when they were together, no fourth, however great, would dream of joining their discourse or their silence. In them would be seen beauty, proportion and greatness, and that perfect harmony, which appears, but once in the full youth of the world. Their three names have become the ideal of art, Plato, Sophocles, and Demosthenes. Those demigods honored, we see a numerous and familiar company of choice spirits who follow, the Cervantes and Molières, practical painters of life, indulgent friends who are still the first of benefactors, who laughingly embrace all mankind, turn man's experience to gaiety, and know the powerful workings of a sensible, hearty, and legitimate joy. I do not wish to make this description, which if complete would fill a volume, any longer. In the Middle Ages, believe me, Dante would occupy the sacred heights, at the feet of the singer of paradise all Italy would be spread out like a garden, Boccaccio and Ariosto would there disport themselves, and Tasso would find again the orange groves of Sorrento. Usually a corner would be reserved for each of the various nations, but the authors would take delight in leaving it, and in their travels would recognize, where we should least expect it, brothers or masters. Lucretius, for example, would enjoy discussing the origin of the world, and the reducing of chaos to order with Milton. But both arguing from their own point of view, they would only agree as regards divine pictures of poetry and nature. Such are our classics, each individual imagination may finish the sketch and choose the group preferred. For it is necessary to make a choice, and the first condition of taste, after obtaining knowledge of all, lies not in continual travel, but in rest and cessation from wandering. Nothing blunts and destroys taste so much as endless journeyings, the poetic spirit is not the wandering Jew. However, when I speak of resting and making choice, my meaning is not that we are to imitate those who charm us most among our masters in the past. Let us be content to know them, to penetrate them, to admire them, 
but let us, the latecomers, endeavor to be ourselves. Let us have the sincerity and naturalness of our own thoughts, of our own feelings, so much is always possible. To that let us add what is more difficult, elevation, and aim, if possible, towards an exalted goal, and while speaking our own language, and submitting to the conditions of the times in which we live, whence we derive our strength and our defects, let us ask from time to time, our brows lifted towards the heights and our eyes fixed on the group of honored mortals, what would they say of us? But why speak always of authors and writings? Maybe an age is coming when there will be no more writing. Happy those who read and read again, those who in their reading can follow their unrestrained inclination. There comes a time in life when, all our journeys over, our experiences ended, there is no enjoyment more delightful than to study and thoroughly examine the things we know, to take pleasure in what we feel, and in seeing and seeing again the people we love, the pure joys of our maturity. Then it is that the word classic takes its true meaning, and is defined for every man of taste by an irresistible choice. Then taste is formed, it is shaped indefinite. Then good sense, if we are to possess it at all, is perfected in us. We have neither more time for experiments, nor a desire to go forth in search of pastures new. We cling to our friends, to those proved by long intercourse. Old wine, old books, old friends. We say to ourselves with Voltaire in these delightful lines, Let us enjoy, let us write, let us live, my dear Horace. I have lived longer than you, my verse will not last so long. But on the brink of the tomb I shall make it my chief care, to follow the lessons of your philosophy, to despise death in enjoying life, to read your writings full of charm and good sense, as we drink an old wine which revives our senses. In fact, be it Horace or another who is the author preferred, who reflects our thoughts in all the wealth of their maturity, of some one of those excellent and antique minds shall we request an interview at every moment, of some one of them shall we ask a friendship which never deceives, which could not fail us, to some one of them shall we appeal for that sensation of serenity and amenity, we have often need of it, which reconciles us with mankind and with ourselves.